With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? Chilling, man. Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. We're we're doing a rare Sunday podcast. Yeah. Or Sunday Sunday afternoon. afternoon. Right right during football Sunday. But you know what? This is more important. This is the only (laughs) time I had time. So we have to make sacrifices. And it brings me to the schedule for at least the next month or so. So you've probably noticed that we've been releasing episodes every other weekend. Not every other weekend. Every other week, excuse me. And the reason why is mainly because of just life events that are happening in both of our lives. Um, I think we're going to continue with that schedule until, Danny, you get back from Europe, right? You're going to Europe in a couple of weeks? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what November. That's that's correct. So it just kind of okay. gives us a little bit of time to focus on good content without like rushing through it, um, because the weeks that we ended up not releasing something is because we weren't fully baked um, for an episode, and rather than put out bad content, we'd rather just do it less frequently. What we're saying is that yeah, um, we're traveling and stuff in the way. We're not going to degrade the content, so. Um, we're going to do every other week for now with the goal of getting back to the weekly schedule again, really. Right. Um, that's ultimately the goal is to, you know, get all these priority things done and then focus on getting the schedule back to where it was. But for now, we're still going to do our best to deliver content consistently. So just wanted to address that because we, we do often get people who are be like, where's my episode? Where's my, where's the episode? Where's the episode? Where's the last episode? I'm like, dude, chill, relax, <laughs> just chill. Listen, <laughs> listen to the back catalog, maybe. Right, we have hundreds of episodes that There's I'm sure hundreds. you probably didn't listen to. There's hundreds. Where's the episode, man? <laughs> you guys don't love it anymore, man. You guys used to do every single week, and now you, you guys, guys used to do three times a week. How come you, you don't do that do- anymore? Yeah, where's your love, man? You guys sold out. <laughs> Do you remember um, when we were doing like three X a week? Man, those episodes yeah. were weird. Yeah, I mean, well, because we looked, we were doing more current events, and we're not doing as much content on current events. Maybe we will do more of that in the future. But honestly, the reason why is because I haven't been really, you know, reading the New York Times like I used to from start to finish. Um, mm-hmm. So I just like don't have the. Uh, I'd rather just focus on doing history, and I think you would too uh, for yeah. now. But regardless, everyone's bored of this conversation. Why don't we get into the actual 
the actual <laughs> episode good. before you All know, right. we were promising better content and we're leading off with with minutes shitty of content <laughs> talking about our schedule and our personal lives which no one really cares about at the end of the day they care about you know the actual content they digest and um, so we are continuing the overall theme of 20th century politics and 20th century warfare world war one world war two and the russian revolution and you know with content like this or with topics like this you just kind of fly everywhere right. so last episode we we covered um really the rise of or the early origins of the bolshevik movement with lenin and now we're jumping to the eastern front we're going to be talking about really the you know the japanese uh, really what kind of what 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 are the origins of world war ii in the east really mm-hmm. um so i don't know danny how do you want to start this off yeah i mean like you said we've been talking you know over the last really several months about the different angles you know uh of things that that contributed to the origins of world war ii by looking at like the various different interwar periods of the european nations and uh, a couple of examples we looked at the you know how the aftermath of world war one shaped the weimar republic in germany uh, we dove into, you know, how the Treaty of Paris redrew the borders of Europe and giving rise to new countries like modern Poland, who we went into depth on. Um, you know, we spent several episodes on the Russian Revolution, both like the origins of that and also the rise of Marxism, which was the last episode, and how that shaped the Russian domestic and foreign policy. And, and we covered these in so many other different types of angles, but we really haven't spent any time covering the other half of the world, like the Eastern one. So... And there are just so many angles that we can possibly cover about the Eastern theater. But I think in particular, we, I thought we might spend maybe a couple episodes covering Japan um, because they're, they're basically the central axis point around which a lot of the events leading up to World War II revolve. Um, and in doing some research on Japan during that interwar period, I find myself like kind of diving back into the relevant history like before and through World War One, to like remind myself really of the conditions that put Japan in the position that it was in, you know, between both of those world wars. So what I thought would be cool uh, today would be to lay some groundwork and do a bit of a refresher on that backstory. And now we've covered pretty much all of these topics either in their own episodes or, you know, in, in part of other episodes over the past several years. But I think doing one quick overview on those today will really make talking about Japan in the interwar period a lot easier in future episodes. And plus, I realized that there were a few topics that we really didn't go into any great detail about uh, that I think, you know, now's a good opportunity to talk about. Sound like a good plan? That sounds like a good plan too. And and I mean, to some degree, this follows up on the last episode we did about really, hmm, how should I say, the shocks to the system in the Russian empire that mm-hmm. kind of spelled exogenous out exogenous shocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really one of the major shocks to the Russian, rev- uh, you know, for the Russian revolution that really contributed to, um, that kind of blew a lot of, or fanned the flames of revolution where it was the, the foreign policy of, of, um, Tsar Nicholas II and, and his, and his cabinet in the East, because essentially what happens is that leads to really a foreign policy disaster um, in in Japan, in a losing a war with Japan or against Japan, which, um, 
you know, it kind of is like the first strike and then the second strike comes in World War One. Right. Um, but we'll cover that today. So why don't we start off? How do you what point of time do you want to start this off in? You know, as a side note, uh, I went through all of our different notes and, and episodes on Japan. And, and I was thinking about going as far back as like the ancient origins of Japan and talking about like the, you know, the ancient peoples there. And, and I was like, nah, this I'm biting off way too much. <laughs> um, but I think, I think a reasonable starting point uh, to kick off some of this backstory is probably talking about the Perry expedition and gunboat diplomacy. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm tempted to, to do, you know, cause I, I told you before I, I recently played a video game called Sekiro, yeah, <laughs> which which takes place in Warring States, Japan. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in Sengoku, Japan, which is like fourteen right. hundreds to the sixteen hundreds, right. until Tokugawa centralizes everything and, and kind of makes it a you know a unified state for two hundred years, or really for its preceding future. But it's interesting. It's a really interesting time. You know, it's, yeah. it's the time of where the samurai exist in popular culture right. or like the ninja exist in popular mm-hmm. culture. And it's like it's a very romanticized period. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of regurgitated now or not regurgitated, but like it's mythologized a lot where, you know, like there was a lot of um, histories going on. And, and I guess this plays into like the, you know, the current rise of like the Japanese identity on the national stage where a lot of that is kind of, um, trying to think of like a good politically correct way to say it without infuriating weebs because <laughs> you know how weebs are oh yeah um they a lot of the stuff about bushido code was like you know really romanticized in like the 19th century early 20th century to to say you know like the bushido code book that was that was you know a per, first written in english you know that's a lot of what um where, where that comes from. Like there wasn't really like a samurai code. Like that stuff right. is all kind of, kind of bullshit. Like there was no such thing as the ninja in like the black clad suit that stuff, you know, like the black, right. uh, like the black hooded, you know, jumpsuit or whatever, the beekeeper mm-hmm. outfit. They, you know, that stuff was all just um, in place. Like that's how they portrayed the ninja in like the Kabuki theater plays. Right. So a lot of this, a lot of that history is, um, you know, mythologized and romanticized, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was just kind of like a warring state, tribal clans killing each other. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't that much to be romanticized about it, but. Nevertheless, it, there's so much popular culture around it. That yeah. It's, it, it's hard and to it's not so, talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting too. It's, yeah, you know, the real history is always. You know, the history is always romanticized into some kind of like fairy tale. But then when you get to the real, like when you start looking at the real history, it's even way more interesting than like yeah. the romanticized version of it. Because mm-hmm. then you get like the real human aspect and right. the real get, gritty, you know, just fucking Game of Thronesy type, you know, uh, uh, stories about the people that vie for power and, you know, the fucked up things that they do to get it. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, there, well, I mean, there's well, actually a pretty good Netflix documentary. But I digress. Yeah, um, we, we could okay. we could actually War- start maybe a little bit earlier than than the Perry Expedition. Maybe we can go with like the Tokugawa Shogun, which is you know this is in the 1600s. You know the, the Tokugawa clan emerges as that power player after that long warring states period in the Sengoku period, and essentially Edo Japan was like a pseudo unified pre modern feudal state at this time where the military class across the country submitted to the Tokugawa shogun and the the shogun promoted uh uh the the confucianism as the official political doctrine mainly because confucian ideology emphasized like a hierarchy right and they were really all about you know a, a, a very defined class system so in 1644 the ming dynasty uh in china falls apart and in order to i don't know identify this like a moral cause of why did the ming um, you know, fall, the, these Japanese Confucian soldiers, uh, excuse me, scholars, um, they engaged with, uh, like looking at classical Confucian texts to, you know, like to, to give some advice on the, on the, the new Tokugawa shogunate, you know, on how not to fucking fall from grace like the Ming dynasty did. And what their argument was, was that Japan in antiquity was perfect at one point. And it was like this utopia, like, you know, Kind of like a lot, a lot of the, this isn't anything new. Like you're going to see this in history all the time where, where people will fetishize or like romanticize the past and it was always greater in the past. I mean, the whole MAGA movement is basically like that, you know, uh, in a nutshell, but that's a, that's a contemporary example, but you'll see this across lots of different histories. We're talking about, we're, we're, we're more so talking about though, like, because, you know, current right wing politics in america it's it's more it's it's such a current like your your grandfathers lived in that time like your grandparents lived exactly. in that time. That's but they were talking about like hundreds about. of years before <laughs> your, your parents were born we're talking about when you're romanticizing a period of time that's so hazy it's so far back that you know the people really don't have that much of a connection to it anymore exactly, you know, exactly. so it's like you're it's kind like of making the connection you know? exactly we still have a connection to to America in the 1950s, to some degree, you know, right, we have documentations. <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. documentations. Your pa- your parents or grandparents lived in it. You, your mm-hmm. your first hand accounts, like you, you know, th- we're very much in the same era. What we're talking about, we're just talking about now, like a reduction in living standards between some groups and and things like that. And that mm-hmm. you know, but I don't want to get into that today. But what we're talking about is hundreds. Of, look, looking at your past and basically what happens is that you're looking, okay, let's look at this period of time. So this is in this case, in Japan, it's 700, right. it's six, mm-hmm. it's 600, 700 AD Japan, mm-hmm. right? The classical period. Right. And that's the period and, that they were talking about in 1600. That was apparently perfect. Yeah. So they're looking back and you know, these historians don't know everything about these, you know, there's, there's obviously text and there's things that survived. Like this wasn't, these weren't Neanderthals. Like this was, right. this was actually an advanced civilization in Japan in the 600s and 700s. Um, it was probably more advanced of a civil civilization than Japan in like the 900s and in you know the ninth century to you know the later on centuries. But mm-hmm. it um, it was when you're looking at that far. Uh, that far back then you of course have to fill in gaps and the gaps that you're using 
or what you're filling in those gaps are things that are usually politically convenient or they're, they're meant to, you know, for something politically. Right. Exactly. The teacher lesson. Exactly. And, and the lesson that they're trying to teach here is that, you know, that like blissful utopian that, that existed hundreds of years prior was, was lost because they got contaminated by foreign influence. So here's where that convenient, like, you know, uh, xenophobia pops up. Um, but, but they believe that it was still possible to like recover that those conditions that the ancient Japanese people had through isolation. And as a result, Japan enters a 200 year period of peace, relative peace and isolation from the rest of the world. And that is, of course, until the gunboats arrive. So in the 17th and 19th centuries, you know, China, you know, kind of jumping around a little bit here, they developed a relatively advanced civilization and and didn't really need to import a whole lot of anything, right? As a matter of fact, the opposite was true. The things that they were making were in high demand all over the world, you know, tea, silk, spices, you know, fine China, stuff like that. And the problem was that China didn't want to trade any of the Western junk for their wares. They only wanted silver, which was in great supply. Um, it was in short supply, I should say, in the West. So this caused a bit of a trade deficit that eventually, go figure, led to the opium wars um, between China and the British. And, you know, yada, yada. Next thing you know, the British now own Hong Kong after that war. And what's relevant about that story is that Japan... Um, took notice of what happened to China and kind of give them the spooks uh, about something like that happening to them in the future. It also gave them some preliminary ideas about, you know, potentially being like the big dog in Asia, seeing how China was just utterly humiliated by the Western powers. Um, and at the same time, uh, the shogunate and the feudal system in in Japan was was generally just collapsing by that point. Um and the, the emperor was a puppet to the shogun. You know, a lot of people were worried about fighting Western powers with all their modern weapons since the current Japanese government had been totally cut off from trade from the West. And they couldn't exactly build up to a Western strength without that trade. So, you know, they were kind of in a pickle. Meanwhile, uh, the U.S. is becoming more and more interested in Japan. Um, this is the period where the U.S. was annexing California and they were they had their eyes set on the Pacific and they were they were figuring that there would be more and more commerce happening to Asia vis-a-vis, you know, that Pacific coast. And one reason for the U.S. interest in Japan was that, um, you know, the U.S. had recently converted from wood ships to coal ships, and the U.S. merchants' ships would require, you know, more fueling stations across the Pacific to make the journey. Um, Another big reason is that there was a rumor that Japan was actually loaded up with a shit ton of coal, which turned out not to be true. Um, but nevertheless, these were kind of motivating factors that that got the U.S. super interested in Japan. So in 1845, uh, there was this resolution put forward through the House to try and open up relations with Japan. And they initially sent over Commodore James Biddle um, to lead an expedition to Japan to open up some trade relations. Uh, so Biddle, he, he sails directly to Edo. And to make a long story short, he gets rejected. In fact, um, Biddle's voyage to Japan ends up being really, really embarrassing. Um, what makes it an embarrassment um, was that rather than the expedition just just being a failure on its own, was that there was like this awkward miscommunication that happens. Um, 
Evidently, Biddle jumped on board a Japanese ship thinking he, they invited him on, but he wasn't. You know, they, they get into a little bit of, of a scuffle, and allegedly he's pushed to the floor and has a sword drawn on him, which must have been fucking scary. Um, also, to make things more embarrassing, uh, when Biddle was leaving uh, Edo, Japan, when, when they kicked him out, um, his ships couldn't catch a sail. <laughs> so they had to tow him out to the ocean by Japanese ships, which is just like super embarrassing uh for them and when biddle returns to the u.s uh his reputation takes a huge hit and the tress the press treats him super poorly uh especially since um, well it turns out um while he was in japan there was some u.s prisoners there from a wrecked whaling ship and he failed to like get them released so the next uh you know u.s basically they 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 sent Captain James Glynn on a mission to free those prisoners. And and Glynn was was cautious but respectful and also super firm. You know, he doesn't make any direct threats to the Japanese, but he makes these, these vague threats, you know, by lying about the number of ships he has and things like that. And he does end up getting those American prisoners back. And when Glynn returns home, his mission was, you know, you know, lauded as a success. Um, you know, the narrative in the press was that the mission was successful because it was supposedly like more of an aggressive tone while Biddle's mission was a failure because it was he was weak, right? Anyway, when Glenn gets back to the U.S., he starts to personally lobby for the U.S. to open up relations with Japan and also just to take the opportunity to shit on Biddle for a little bit. Poor Biddle. Um, and the, the press basically echoes those same sentiments. So in short, this combination led to the foundation of what would be the Perry Expedition. That's what kind of was going on in the U.S. at the time. Um, so the Perry expedition, their first visit to Japan was between 1852 and 1853. And Perry was, um, he was put in command by the East India squadron, um, and tasked with the mission of, um, basically going over to Japan and ending their 200 plus year closed door policy. Uh, Perry was pretty smart, dude. Um, he did his homework. He knew what happened to the people behind, that came before him, like, you know, Biddle and, and Glenn. So he basically, before he left, he demanded extra authority from the U.S. State Department to basically do whatever the fuck he wanted um, or whatever the fuck he needed, really, uh, to get the job done, and up to and including using military force. And so he rolled up over to Japan with something like three warships, three supply ships, and three support ships, which is more than his predecessors, but certainly not enough to like start a full-scale you know, sea war uh, with Japan. Um, but he also brought some bargaining chips too, uh, not just weapons. He, he brought some old weapons that the U.S. wasn't using anymore as a way to bribe the Japanese. So that was an option for him. And uh, to make a somewhat long story short, we have a whole episode on this, but this is the outcome of that. Um, Perry Island hopped his way through Japan. He basically threatened violence and invasions for every island that he landed in. And he also fired a bunch of blanks at Edo to get them to bend at, to his will. Coincidentally, and this is just something that Perry couldn't have foreseen, but definitely worked out to his advantage, the current shogun was sick at the time and died, uh, and it, and he left the shogunate to his weak son. Uh, you know, Japan put it to a vote, and the rank and file decided that it wouldn't be a violation of Japanese sovereignty to do a little bit of trading, so they capitulated. Um, but they also decided to, to fortify Tokyo Bay. And, you know, he told them, Perry told, tells Japan after that, he's like, hey, 
I'm going to come back in a year to get this trade started. And I'm coming back with more ships and more men, so don't fuck around. And there was a bit of a fight um, about like where the U.S. would be able to do trade with Japan. And and the argument that Perry said to the Japanese with that was that he would bring 100 ships to wreck the Japanese if he didn't get his way. It, that's a lot of ships. And for context, the U.S. didn't even have 100 ships at the time in its entire fleets. For some more modern context, today we only have 490 total ships, and not all of them are blue water or even active. So this was a total bluff, um, but Perry was kind of a G. You know, uh, his, his ships and forces were superior, but there would, there would be no way that he could keep up a naval battle against Japan you know, across the ocean for super long. I think he just had yeah. a u- unique ability to swing his dick around and, and just, you know, basically. He was just basically like the white, the white man's coming and you've seen these ships before. There's going to be a right. lot more. Exactly. Right. And it was a, it was a good bluff. I mean, it worked um, because gunboat diplomacy effectively opened up Japan to outside influences, which would lead to a radical restructuring of everything, including its government, its culture, even its national identity, and that's known as the Meiji Restoration. Um, But when talking about the eventual invasion of Manchuria and the eastern origins of World War II, uh, the Perry Expedition is really like the event to start with. Because without the gunboat diplomacy of the 1850s, Japan may never have gone through such a radical change and would likely never have had the means with which to form an empire to provoke the eastern theater of World War II. And, and that's kind of like, you know, kind of a loaded paragraph right there, what you said. Like, you know, without the gunpoint diplomacy, uh, Japan wouldn't have had the the uh, means to provoke the Eastern theater of World War II because you could say that the United States provoked Japan into World War II, you know? For sure. Um, yeah. with, with, you know, the going, you know, with, with working with the Chinese and, and, you know, all the trade embargo stuff. So you could mm-hmm. you could absolutely make the case the other way around that that side was provoked, um, but we'll get into that as we kind of explore this history because it's a big part of the war in Germany as well. Um, we got to talk about the Meiji Restoration and and basically yeah. the Meiji Restoration was and we you know we've, we've talked about this a bunch over the years, but it's essentially what happens is that the it's an imperial government that is actually the origins of it is is by it's founded by low-ranking samurai who were already disgruntled with the shogunate and they had they were disgruntled for a lot of different reasons um you know one of the reasons was that the shogun had you know proven to fail to prevent the country from being influenced by the foreign barbarians the white man and um you know, another reason was the Shogun sold out Japan to the West. So what they did is that they still needed this centralized figure if it wasn't the Shogun. They still needed to have this kind of central authority or this moral authority uh, to make this unified state last. Because before the Shogun, before the you know the Tokugawa period, Japan was a bunch of rival clans and warring states. And this went... This was going on perpetually for about a 200-year period. So they um, diverted their loyalty from the shogun back to the emperor, 
who at the time was just like completely powerless and had a ceremonial role. Um, and there was this movement called What is Japan? And it was basically an internal mechanism of the government that argued that, you know, Japan was this, you know, perfect place in antiquity, uh, like, you know, we were talking about before. Um, it was a utopia and that what contaminated Japan essentially was the foreign influence, which was identical to the arguments that were being made during the 200-year Tokugawa period. But the difference was is that the new leaders of this movement, instead of you know holding onto their isolationist policy, they quickly realized that if they don't modernize, they're going to end up like China. Mm-hmm. And that was a big fear. Because China in the 1800s was being carved up like a Thanksgiving Day turkey. You know, when you look at China in the early 20th century, it's, you know, it's not recognizable at all to what modern China is right now. It was it was a bunch of warlords. It was a bunch of international cities. It was, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't until the, you know, the modern Chinese government really invented in the the early 20th century. This is just kind of like a shell of itself in its ancient glory. And Japan's big fear was being car- being carved up like that. Probably would have been carved up like that. Very likely. If they yeah. didn't if if they if they didn't um you know go through this rapid industrialization process in, during the Meiji Restoration and it's pretty remarkable what they did and it's just going from essentially a, you know, I, I think people kind of over, they underestimate how advanced Japan was at the time before uh, Commodore Perry arrived. Mm-hmm. Like they make it seem like, oh, this was completely just like a feudal medieval society. It was not a feudal medieval society. It was very much kind of a modern place in the 1800s. You know, it had, but it did lack in things like, you know, modern med- medical science or modern or modern weapons, um, you know, modern just modern science in general. You know, that really comes out of the of the seventeenth. It comes out of the West in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Um, but like Japan itself was still like a highly populated country. Mm-hmm. Tokyo or Edo at the time, I forget when they officially changed the name from Edo to Tokyo. Is um, you know that is the largest city in the world. By the right. time Matthew Commodore Perry, they have a sophisticated arrives. system of government, you know. Um, so it's not like they yeah. showed up to Afghanistan or something. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, no. There's something so such in the backwater. Like it was already a functioning state. They just needed some toys. It just the, the new policy was really just kind of transforming the political mechanisms internally, um, and um, just rapidly industrial. It, 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 you know, go industrializing because I'm, most of most countries went through some type of rapid industrialization process. Right. Um, mm-hmm. During it, it just took Japan like you know a couple of decades rather than yeah I think it was a like century years or something like that yeah it was about a forty year <laughs> period on average it took it took um you know it took maybe sixty years but I mean there's parts of the Russian Empire that are completely I mean not just the Russian Empire but all over Europe really that are way more backwater than than Japan was at this time. 
Um, mm-hmm. The Russian Empire jumps to mind because there's literally, you know, serf population, like massive, massive illiterate serf populations and peasant populations that come from it um, all over that are completely disconnected from from the Tsarist regime. You know, they're their own little local community. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess in short, the state gets up to par with the modern West of the time. And what's important to the story is that they get to a point where they're able to really wage war and, um, you know, fight Western powers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and with, with that modernization, Japan starts to engage in its own version of imperialism. You know, I think in, in what's, Meiji what's Japan... The, what's the okay. zone called? The, the prosperity zone? The, um, Eastern Prosperity Zone. What did they call it? Like what their name of the empire was going to be called, or what yeah, it was I, called? I totally forgot. Um, fuck, that's going to bother me. It, it was something like that for sure. It was like the, the the Eastern Economic Prosperity Zone or some shit like that. Um, the, fuck, why it, didn't I write that down? No sweat. We'll fine. come back to it. Um, so I was going to say in in Meiji Japan, they they don't like. They don't just like gradually engage in imperialism. They basically turn on that that faucet like immediately, and they start using the same foreign policy tactics as the, the Greater West. East Asia Co Prosperity Sphere. Yep, that's that's the one. what it was, it was called. Super so long, the great, and stupid. The Greater East Asia Co Prosperity Sphere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, big goals call for big names, I guess, right? <laughs> Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Well, it's just interesting when you like read stuff from the Japanese from the side, like glory to the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Cause they really saw themselves <laughs> as leaders of the yeah. Asian of the East of Asian right. countries. Right. And it's because they, they saw the, the power vacuum with the, with basically the collapse of, of the you know, Chinese system and um, as they got carved up. So. You know, who else was going to step in? Obviously, it was going to be them. They're not going to let, like, the Koreans or something like that jump up. They're not going to, like, you know, 
freaking the Philippines aren't going to somehow develop a, a a major Western, you know, uh, style government that can create an empire. It was going to either be them or the Russians. And that's how they saw it. And they were like, well, it's going to be us then. That's it. So, you know, like I said, they, they in Meiji Japan, they don't, they don't just like decide to gradually like dip their toe into imperialism. They just start doing it immediately. Um, and their first target, um, the first target for Japan is Korea. Um, Korea at the time was considered like the dagger point to Japan, you know, m- primarily because of its proximity across the, the narrow Tsushima Straits um, that made Korea like the ideal place to threaten Japan. Um, but so, so Japan did the exact same thing that, you know, to Korea that the U.S. did to it. Uh, they forced their borders open through through gunboat diplomacy. And, you know, the Korean backstory of this history is super fascinating. And we do a whole episode on on how it's monarchic structure. You know, at the time it was reading like, like one of the Game of Thrones books, uh, you know, of course, before all the supernatural shit starts to take off. But uh, I won't dive too deep into that uh, because the names are super hard to pronounce. And also there's so many characters, but here's a short version. Uh, and if you're interested, you can listen to the full episode. Um, so one Korean king, he dies. He doesn't have a male heir. Uh, through the succession rules, some 12-year-old boy named Gojong ends up you know, ascending to the throne. Gojong is obviously too young to rule, so his dad takes over as the regent. Um, Daddy takes up you know, Korea, and he sets it up to be an isolationist country to protect it from foreign influence. Sounds super similar to Japan. Daddy gets nervous uh, that the in-laws of anyone who his son marries will undermine his power. So, you know, he picks up some orphan girl from a lesser clan and and makes her Gojong's bride. That's Queen Min. Um, But she ends up not being as weak as Daddy hoped. Uh, Gojong and Min grow up, and Min has been busy plotting to take control, quietly filling government positions with people that were loyal to her. And when Gojong takes control uh, officially, uh, Daddy gets the boot, and Queen Min effectively takes the reins. Um, Korea begins to reverse its isolation policy, which attracts the attention of lots of state actors, especially the newly formed Meiji. And that's the you know, backstory for the Korean history in a nutshell. Definitely recommend that other episode though, because it goes into much greater detail. But that's that's the the playing field that we're on right now. So Meiji Japan sends a letter in 1868 uh, on behalf of their emperor to Korea uh, to open up trade. And initially the Koreans don't play ball. And this pisses off the Japanese, but they just kind of wait around. So a few years later in 1875, they take a page out of Perry's book and they send over a warship. But what's different about this situation is that instead of lying about their naval power and threatening, you know, the coastline by by firing some blanks like Perry did, the Japanese straight up destroyed a fort and murdered 35 people on site. Like they did not hesitate whatsoever. Um, a year later, this forces the Koreans into the uh, Gangwa Treaty, uh, which opened up Korea for trade, but also uh, which notably establishes Korea as an independent state. And, you know, I mean, the very first article of the Gangwa Treaty uh, stated that Korea was a free nation, quote, an independent state enjoying the same sovereign rights as does Japan. And that was noteworthy um, because up until that point and for centuries leading up to it, uh, Korea was a tributary state to China. Um, So the idea that, you know, now it's suddenly a free state after being 
subject to gunboat diplomacy by the Japanese, that obviously doesn't sit super well with China. And this is where the politics start to get kind of juicy. Um, so Queen Min gets some advice from a Chinese scholar that Korea ought to use like Japan as an example for reform uh, and also ally with the Qing dynasty in China to come out on top and kind of play, play both sides and not be sub- subject to threats from Western powers, especially Russia. Uh, and that's pretty much exactly what Min does. Uh, she starts her own campaign of reforms, uses Jap- Japan as a model, cozies up with the Ming. Uh, and initially, this really didn't threaten Japan at all. Um, Japan knew that they weren't, at the time, particularly strong enough to annex Korea outright. And actually, a relatively strong and independent Korea would act as a buffer state you know, for larger threats like China or Russia. So they actually collaborated with Queen Min to get that those reforms done. Um, but this doesn't go over so well, and it triggered a mutiny in 1882 in Korea, uh, which mostly was over unpaid wages, but also, you know, about the foreign policy. And uh, be, because, you know, frankly, a lot of people were not happy with Min aligning itself so well with the Japanese that just kind of came over one day and murdered a bunch of people, you know, like on site. Um, so lots of Japanese diplomats were killed during that, um, you know, uh, uprising. And old daddy, um, the the King Gojon's dad, Uh, who got the boot uh, several years earlier, he comes back into the picture and he's supported by 4,500 Qing soldiers, puts down the mutiny and reestablishes for a brief period the status quo, which was, you know, Korea is a tributary state to, you know, China and it's also a closed, you know, it's no foreign intervention. So Japan's not very happy about this, but they, they basically use this as an opportunity to bide their time and do a massive military buildup in the meantime, though, uh, they do some clandestine activities to support a coup to undermine Daddy's government, but that gets foiled by Daddy, and you know he ends up killing more Japanese diplomats. So at this point, now the Japanese are really pissed, and they send warships. Um, and well, long story short, this this creates a peace deal that lasts for about ten years with uh, Korea until this pro-Japanese Korean revolutionary is assassinated uh, in China which triggers both a Japanese outrage and a peasant uprising in Korea, which is, again, mostly about taxation, but also about some of the foreign policy. Um, So Japan sends its forces to secure the royal palace in Seoul and sets up a pro-Japanese government that expels the Qing. The Qing and Japan have a few small battles over the whole thing, and Japan comes out on top, which basically cements its influence in South Korea. Before, of course, it was South Korea, just the southern areas of Korea. And this was all before any war was declared, uh, and that didn't happen until 1894. So they were already basically making moves and doing what what would be tantamount to war anyway. But it's officially de- war is officially declared between China and Russia uh, and, and Japan. So that's the first um, uh, Sino-Japanese war in 1894. And the next few months saw full-scale war where the newly modernized Meiji army absolutely spanked the Qing throughout Korea. This included an absolutely embarrassing loss at Pyongyang, which Japan took in a day by surrounding the city. And importantly for for context here, the Japanese immediately moved to um, cross the border northwards into Manchuria. And that's going to be important for later on. Um, 
The Japanese crushed a border fortification in three hours one night, and then the next afternoon sent the Qing into a full retreat. Uh, they created a foothold in Chinese territory and only lost four soldiers and 140 wounded, which is just embarrassing for the Qing. It's like they barely lost anything at all. Um, all these wins for Japan came despite the odds of the day. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of political commentators and like military strategists were thinking that you know that this ought to favor the Qing. I mean, they're on they're on their territory. They you know have better supply lines, and and Japan's this little uh, fucking island nation. You know, like yeah, they got a lot of people and they got a newly modern navy, but they just they just modernized. There's no way that they can fight the Qing. The Qing was also doing some modernization, but clearly it wasn't working. Anyway, as the winter approaches, um, Japan knew that it it literally could not hold up in a war of attrition against China. There's just not, the math didn't make sense. You know, they didn't have the supplies or the, I mean, they didn't even have like winter clothes, I think, which was interesting. They went into this war without planning that part. So they decided to move in closer and threaten Beijing uh, by taking a key Chinese port in Lushenko, uh, which is later known as Port Arthur. Uh, which is located at the extreme southern tip of the the Liaodong Peninsula. Now, for the Americans listening, you can think of this as like taking over Delaware to have a foothold to threaten D.C. And for the rest of the listeners out there, I don't know, look at a map or something like that. But it's super close to like Beijing, right? Um, And after the winter, uh, the Qing end up giving up because they're like, oh shit, they have the Liaodong Peninsula, we're fucked. Um, and you know, they end up ceding the Liaodong Peninsula as well as Taiwan and some other, uh, minor islands in the Pacific, uh, to Japan. And it basically seems like Japan was on its route, on its way to becoming a local hegemon. Um, but there was one more war to fight, uh, before they could really take up that title and, and go on to form a true empire. Yeah. And I guess the, their coming out party on the world stage is, um, you know, really embarrassing when China <laughs> is it, it's embarrassing China, but it was still, you know, to the West, it was considered like, you know, they considered like some foreign yellow nation that was far less advanced and it was far less advanced than, than Western countries at the time. The, you know, the true coming out party when they set themselves on the state on the world stage is, is really the early 20th century, 1905, uh, 1906, mm-hmm. when, they defeat Russia in the war and, and basically, right. and this kind of piggybacks off the last episode that we did with, with, um, you know, really with, with the czar, the czar's government, you know, it's an interesting side note when you, you, there was a lot of Western leaders that had kind of really negative experiences in Japan, which, you know, where something didn't go right. Like there's like a famous story about Kaiser Wilhelm going mm-hmm. over to, when he was in Japan, like, the the Japanese populace did not take to him, and there was like protests with against them, and there's like a lot of like kind of this animosity between um, you know Western leaders visiting and 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 you know you know Japanese politicians, especially with European countries. At the time, they looked at the at, they looked at the English speaking U.S. And, and the British a lot more favorable than you know the Russians and the Germans, or the, it, it's it was an interesting dynamic that played out. But mm-hmm. um, I guess what happens with the Sino, not Sino-Japanese, the Russo-Japanese War is that 
you know, there's there's kind of a power vacuum, and and the big players were Russia and Japan, and there was this rapid modernization process that was taking place in Russia at basically the same time as this rapid modernization process was taking place in Japan. You know, the same same time periods. And, um, you know, basically this was kind of a war over, over railroad space. So there was a, so I guess the way the geopolitical sphere was working out was that there was these massive kind of, there was this massive political rivalry between Germany and France. Um, and they were at the time they were both sort of still competing for favor with Russia uh, to some degree. Um, the British were trying to negotiate fears of influence in Asia with Russia. And essentially the British had this big fear that at any time the Russian army could just like walk over and take India from, from their, their colonies in the East. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they would never be able to support India with, with, with the land army. So they always had this fear over, over losing the, the British Raj. Um, Russia really gets involved in Northeastern Asia after the Sino-Japanese War, which, you know, leads to these concessions involving the, you know, Port Arthur and, and, and the Liaotung Peninsula, Liaotung mm-hmm. Peninsula. I can never pronounce that correctly. Yeah, Liaotung, Liaotung. Mm-hmm. The Russo-Chinese Bank was established the next year with a with with basically French capital to finance the construction of a railroad in northern Manchuria. So Russia acquired leases in Port Arthur and throughout the peninsula, and then built and started building out railroads, um, really railroads from to Port Arthur. The Boxer so- Rebellion that. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't mean to cut you off there, but you're missing a little bit of, of like important context for Japan here, and it's that you know they won the Sino-Japanese War, uh, and you know they got the spoils of the entire Liaodong Peninsula, which would include Port Lushenku or what would later be called Port Arthur. But you know the the issue there was that uh, the the European powers didn't like that Japan took over that area because they had their sights on it as well. And so after that first Sino-Japanese war, Japan was pressured by uh, a bunch of these European powers, especially Russia, to let go of the Liaodong Peninsula. And so there was this, uh, um, basically this triple intervention, what it was called, uh, between Germany, Russia, and France. And they basically got together and told Japan to fuck off in the Liaodong Peninsula and even though Japan was coming off of a high, they weren't stupid enough to pick a fight with three major Western powers simultaneously. Um, but they were able to, because of this, figure out that the Western plan was to cr- carve up the the crumbling Qing Empire and that they had no plans on letting Japan have any piece of it. So Japan sets up this mutual agreement with the British, who you, you mentioned, you know, was itself afraid of, you know, losing its possessions in, in the you know, Asia Pacific, um, like 
India and like, you know, some of their island possessions in, in the Pacific Ocean. So they create this kind of bond between one another to counteract that triple threat laid out by uh, to them by the Germans, the French and the Russians. British were super happy to help because it, it strengthened their interest in the region as well against those very same powers. Yeah. And, and the British and were I, super the, the at this time period, the, the, the British were um, they were very isolated. You know, they were they were very they didn't really have like a strong partnership in Europe. They're only they didn't really have any strong partnerships in the world. You know, they mm-hmm. still had territorial disputes with with the United States, which they which they kind of really kind of get on their knees to the U.S. You know, in the late eighteen mm-hmm. hundreds. Um, but it was this time where they you know they feel this isolation and they and they basically reach out to Japan. And they're like, hey, like you want to partner up? We're both these we're these both. Both of us are these great island nations. We know we have a lot in common, and we have a mutual enemy, and that enemy is is always Russia for for the mm-hmm. British. Even though it changes right before World War One, but up until up until like the Ural, you know, up until the British get into this large naval race with Germany, their primary um, rival is is the Russian empire and it's all, and it's the Russian empire throughout the entire 19th century. It's, you know, the great game, which is like the geopolitical struggle over central Asia. So they reach out to Japan, to, you know, the form this partnership and they're in, it, it works out for them. You know, they, yeah. they chose wisely and, and their partnership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Korea declares its independence from the Qing and it starts going through a lot of reforms that were all obviously sponsored by Japan, who had won uh, that Sino-Japanese uh, war. But Russia f- somehow manages to get a lot of initial benefits in Korea uh, during this um, during this modernization process. I mean, the king of Korea even stayed in, in Russia, in the Russian legation for like a year. Um, and by this time, under Tsar Nicholas II, you know, Russia had been expanding its empire, you know, from Eastern Europe through the Eastern stretches of, of East Asia. Um, but because of like insufficient modernization and rising debts, I think Russia was pretty weak at this moment and, you know, had a lot of challenges, you know, uh, the construction of that Trans-Siberian Railway was the major project that symbolized Russia's ambitions in the East, but obviously it was needed to be bankrolled somehow. So they, they were in debt. They were, they became a debtor nation. Um, and the idea was behind this was to connect, you know, Western Russia, uh, with the East and open up the possibility for expansion into Chinese territory and beyond. And then in 1897, uh, to your point, and this is the point that I cut you off there, Henry, (laughs) you know, 1897, Russia goes ahead and leases, uh, the warm water port, uh, Port Arthur uh, or Lushunku, whichever one it was called at the time, uh, from China. And that's the same port that Russia told Japan to fuck off from in that triple intervention. Um, side note, and for obvious reasons, it seems like most of the conflicts Russia gets into in the modern age involves at least one warm water port. Um, I was thinking about this in a funny way, like if, if Puerto Rico becomes an independent state uh, or like an independent nation from the U.S., 
Like I wouldn't at all be surprised if we saw like a Russian sub showing up in San Juan to ask to park park their shit in our marina. That's my no, we, they, World War Three prediction. <laughs> yeah, that would be a World War Three prediction. But yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> that 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 is a an observation, a keen observation. It's always been one of their big, the biggest challenge for Russia has always been finding a warm water port or finding right. or, or getting port access. There's yeah, so much that, limited real estate for them to to take. Yeah. For sure. I mean, they chose the the northernmost area, so <laughs> and and it's like the and and everyone knows that. So, the British were, you know, the British and the French in the nineteenth century. Their geopolitical objectives were always to prevent Russia from right, getting just cock block them, like by, like, by like by the cock block them the, any way they could. I mean, that's what the right. Crimean War was really about, and right. they. Um, Part of the Syrian you know, war also had had you know Russia's yeah, interest there in, was the in more of a modern well. in a more of a modern context, but it's it's really interesting because there is this this you know there's this recognition that the big population in in Europe like the the country that has the most potential to be like a true superpower is always Russia, and it's this fear mm-hmm. across all these. European nations at the time that oh Russia is going to be the big power once they get their shit together they have 180 yeah. million people who live within the Russian Empire like once they modernize like they might be the most powerful country in the world we need to right. do whatever we can to keep them from from uh, reaching this industrialization potential <laughs> yeah. and, and then the French finally are just like fuck it let's just invest in it and make mm-hmm. some money off of this right 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 and what they invested and in, and to come back to the topic. You know, Russia builds uh, a railway to connect their existing Trans-Siberian Railway to the port of Port Arthur. And that goes straight through the territory uh, in China that Japan was eyeing to take for themselves. Um, Then in 1899, and this is where we get into the Boxer Revolution, which I don't think we've ever done like a full episode or or like a detailed, you know, go through on this one. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about that. Um, 1899, and this is fucking crazy. A bunch of literal kung fu fighters in China led an anti-foreign, anti-colonial, and anti-Christian uprising, which is called the Boxer Revolution. And those guys were led by an interestingly named group called the Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Fists, which is just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and and uh, they were known as boxers because they practiced Chinese martial arts like kung fu which at the time was called Chinese boxing. And these rebels rose in response to foreign influence and privileges that were given to Christian missionaries in China. Um, But the funniest reasons that I learned of why they started this revolution was a series of natural disasters, like the flooding of the Yellow River and like a bunch of droughts that happened that they end up blaming on the foreign and Christian presence in China. So this was like the 19th century version of the Jewish space lasers conspiracy that like blamed the California wildfires on the Rothschilds. And it's equally stupid. Um, But in this case, that conspiracy led to an armed rebellion that killed a bunch of people, including uh, Christian missionaries and Chinese Christians. And it came to a peak in the in 1900 when they showed up to Beijing 
and they're basically telling people to support Ching and exterminate the foreigners, which is a very scary thing to, you know, to be, you know, saying. And a bunch of foreign diplomats and a bunch of uh, other people uh, affected, like Chinese uh, Christians, um, they, excuse me, <coughs> sorry, um, a bunch of foreign diplomats and, and others, you know, they, they seek refuge in the diplomatic legation and quarter in Beijing, uh, which the boxers quickly end up besieging. And and I have to cover this part because it's so fucking weird. Um, these nut jobs, the boxers, they believe that they were somehow immune to bullets. <laughs> you know, I forgot a lot of this history, man. Um, yeah, Like a lot too. of the stuff about the Japanese annexation of Korea and the boxer rebellion. I, mm-hmm. I can't believe how much I forgot, but I do remember, I do remember reading about this. That yeah, they, they, they really thought they were thought... immune to bullets. So the, apparently, uh, because, you know, the, 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 these secret societies, like the righteous and harmonious fist guys, right? <laughs> That's Which so fucking funny. awesome. That's just a, that is such a funny name. Yeah, it really is. But how that they is, would initiate... That is funnier their... than the, the, the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. <laughs> yeah, I, that one's just kind of a corny name, right? It's just like you couldn't think of something more catchy and you just have yeah, to... Yeah, I guess that <laughs> is kind of a... It's like... It's a, it's a blatant empire. Mm-hmm. And especially in the context of like creating... When we did the episode on Unit 731... And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're like making all these labs and like the, all these labs are for the glory of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. <laughs> these... <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, this, that is a right, so, awesome, awesome name. Yeah. Righteous and harmonious fist dudes. So they, they led their new members to believe that they're, that they're immune to bullets. Uh, and they would tell them that like their Kung Fu magic or whatever would protect them from foreign weapons like these bullets and how they would get them to believe this. They would prove it by shooting blanks at their members and be like, see, nothing happened to you. We just shot you with one of these Western bullets. Right. And it's just like so fucking crazy because they would believe it. And you know, this is a great way to get their new members pumped about murdering a bunch of Christians and foreigners um, by just banking them believe that they have superpowers. Right. But also it's it made it super easy for them to get wrecked when the West got involved because they believed they had fucking kung fu magic or some shit like that. Um, so in response to these righteous fisters, uh, righteous fisters, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm calling them. Um, righteous fisters. They uh, an eight nation alliance was formed, uh, and that was with the Americans. The Can I Austro- cut you off Hungarians. real quick? Righteous yeah, Fisters would be a great name for like a, for a metal band. Yeah, Righteous <laughs> Fisters. We are like a punk band, maybe. Right? We are the yeah, Righteous a punk Fisters. Band. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so eight nation alliance formed. Uh, it's the Americans, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the British, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Japanese, and the Russians. Which is kind of an unprecedented, like you know, commingling of of nations for one distinct purpose of of you know preventing these righteous fisters from killing you know their diplomats. And these forces intervened, and obviously quickly defeated not only the fisters but the also the Chinese imperial army that was taking their their side. 
and they lifted the siege in Beijing. And the aftermath of this saw like extensive looting and executions um, of of these fisters, uh, as well as the Boxer Protocol, which um, imposed severe penalties on China, uh, including the payment of these like large indemnities, which by the way, exceeded their annual revenues. <laughs> like the amount of money that they had to pay exceeded their annual revenues every year. Um, it also allowed foreign troops to station in Beijing, which is again, just to insult to injury. The, this, the Ming, the Qing dynasty is just totally in full collapse at this point. And, you know, their inability to manage the situation weakened its hold on China. The difficult situation. Very, very difficult situation for sure. It's a difficult situation. <laughs> but I mean, this this prompted significant significant governmental reforms in China, which ultimately would would prove futile because you know the Qing Dynasty would collapse pretty soon after. Um, but I'll point out though that, and this is kind of important, the Russian involvement in the uh, Eight Nation Alliance against the the Fisters was primarily to just secure the railway that they built between Port Arthur and Russia. They didn't really do much of anything outside of just put troops on the railway. Um, and uh, people took notice of that, especially Japan. Uh, and once the rebellion was over, uh, they never left. Uh, in fact, they actually took the opportunity after that you know, engagement to send more troops into the area because now, you know, part of the part of the deal you know, the, the capitulation deal with the Chinese was that now they can send troops into Beijing and, and other areas of China. Um, you know, they, they really didn't want to take any more risk with their, you know, big expansion projects in China. And uh, this obviously doesn't sit well with the Japanese, you know, who also participated in the eight nation, you know, uh, collective, um, but also wanted to take that same territory for themselves. So at a certain juncture, Japan kindly asks Russia to get out uh, and Russia responds, I got a better idea. How about you get out of China? Which, you know, I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing and, and, and trivializing the issue, but that's basically how it went down. You know, um, Tsar Nicholas II, he was pretty certain that he could beat Japan at this point. And pretty much every major nation thought that that would be an easy win. Like if there was betting odds that, it would definitely be stacked towards Russia. I mean, they had three times the population and five times the military. It was pretty far away, you know, on the Western side, of course. But, I mean, that's just a small technical issue, right? Well, it wasn't. And people, I mean, people had experience fighting the Russians. Right. Like, they knew that the army existed and was good. And honestly, in like the 19, mm-hmm. in, in the early. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. 20th century, the Russian army was really good. The army itself mm-hmm. was good. What right. ends up getting fucked is the Navy. Like the Navy well, is what gets underclassed. They also just couldn't move their troops across land yet because the, the Trans-Siberian Railway wasn't totally finished. Um, so moving troops across that just vast territorial expanse that they have was really a difficult issue. And at this point, Nicholas really, really needed a win because Russia was starting to fracture under like general discontent um, and their unwillingness to come to a negotiated settlement with Japan over this like Manchurian area that they were building a railroad through. Like they, they just straight up didn't want to negotiate at all. And not only did they not want to negotiate, but they pushed the envelope even further and was like, oh, how about you just leave Korea instead? You know, like they were trying to be a bully about it, you know? Um, and this fucked them, you know, because Japan declares war in February of 1904. And in just a couple of hours after declaring war, they attack Port Arthur and crush the Russian Pacific Fleet, like absolutely cripple it. Um, and they take this opportunity to spark, start pouring their army into Korea. Um, you know, the Russians end up setting fortifications on their side of the border in China, um, but the Japanese numbers and their crazy will, and I can't underscore this enough. These guys would fight to the death. They would never surrender. They just do fucking insane things. And that had a lot to do with the culture uh, surrounding, like the, like the military, the militarized culture that came up around the Meiji Restoration, right? Like militarism was instilled in their like educations from a very early age. And, you know, they just made a bunch of insane fucking kamikaze you know, attackers. And this scared the shit out of Russians because like the Russian army was fantastic at the time, like you pointed out, but like, they also weren't like, they didn't have like a death wish. Right. Um, they, that's not how they fought. And so that scared them off, you know, uh, from the border. Uh, they, they just, they pushed back. They surrendered Port Arthur pretty, pretty quickly. And now Russia is so far and it's so far from from Russia, too. It's like exactly the reason why, you know, this leads to the the turmoil from the Sino-Japanese from the Russo-Japanese war, you know, kind of is like the beginning of the end for the czar, like we had mentioned. But one of the reasons why it's such a catastrophe is because at home there's so many economic and political problems in Russia at the time. Right. And there is, you know, there's, you know, this kind of culminates into Bloody Sunday where uh, the czarist, you know, czarist police fire on a 
labor protest, which leads to a um, you know mass civil unrest for for I think about a three week period of just horrible, yeah. horrible civil unrest. People assassinated um, on a regular basis, like just really bad. But one of the reasons why it was so crazy is because there's all these political economic problems at home. And then you're fighting this stupid war and fucking, we don't even know where China. the hell this is. Like, where, exactly. like, where is this? Where like, we don't port. Like, what is this? Port why Arthur? exactly are we fighting? There was war, no, right? there was no like strings attached or national pride associated with this for the average Russian or, you know, a, a Russian national movement in Japan. Right, it's but- in their backyard. So mm-hmm. just the morale was just so much higher. And and the thing about that, it was that like the czar would have done well, would have done like hindsight being 2020. If he was smart, he would have tried to do a negotiated settlement with Japan about the Chinese like territories. Like if he was smart, but because of his pride and because of the weak position that he was in, he needed to like, you know, try and swing his dick around a little bit to try and get a win, you know, to make him look stronger. So his pride got in the way. And maybe if they would have done a negotiated settlement before, like, hey, okay, we're still building this railroad. We still want Port Arthur because we need it. But, like, you can have all of this other area, right? I think that probably would have worked out. Maybe not in the super long term, but definitely in the short term. And what what that would have done was given Russia the opportunity to complete a lot of those projects that they were working on, like the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which would have given them a lot better position to take on the Japanese later on down the line because it would given it would have given them a land corridor to move more troops, which, you know, they were fantastic troops, you know. So that would have really given some problems to the Japanese. But instead, they wanted to, you know, be kind of a bully about it and 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 underestimate the Japanese and their, you know, modernization process. And now they're getting their fucking shit spanked. And like I said, they lost Port Arthur. They lost the majority of their Pacific fleet in a couple hours after declaring war, which is just crazy. And Russia's got a big problem. That railroad is incomplete. So getting like ground support by rail would take a while. Now they do do it, right? They send over the troops as far as they can get through the Russian territory. And then the rest of it, they have to basically march. And all of their other ships that they could possibly use were on another continent in Europe, right? And there isn't a di- exactly like a direct route to China by ship, right? You have to go a fucking long, meandering path around. You, you have know. to go across the Cape of South Africa. That's how they were right. getting. Well, there. you could so, go through the Suez Canal, but but there's that that that's kind of an important point that we'll talk about in a second here. Well, but basically, the all with the Suez ships, Canal is the Brits shut it down, so they well, had they were forced a reason to why go. The Brits shut it down too. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but so anyway, they, they decide, all right, we're going to do both. We're going to go ahead and send, uh, you know, our soldiers on as far as we can, you know, with the railway and they'll march the rest of the way. And then we're also going to send their most mostly undertrained Baltic fleet to Japan. And before this fleet even gets out to the Atlantic Ocean, they open fire on some British like merchant ships, mistaking them for Japanese ships, which by itself is fucking ridiculous like why the fuck would the japanese be already way over there right just makes no sense whatsoever and this obviously pisses off the brits so the brits shut down the suez canal and that's the reason why they can't go through the suez canal right 
Also, there were some concerns about like the the size of the ships and the fleet might not have been able to pass through the um, the Suez Canal too. So like that plan wasn't probably going to work anyway. But they really fucked themselves by pissing the Brits off. Um, and a lot of the ports along the way, you know, uh, in European countries weren't letting them dock and refuel and you know like whatever because they didn't want they wanted to be neutral. They didn't. They were like, oh shit, these Japanese are are actually kind of you know, doing some shit. Did you hear that they crushed the Pacific fleet in a couple hours? Like, you know, they were thinking like, I don't want to piss off the Japanese right now because they might come out on top at this point. And so they send this Baltic fleet the fucking long way, the long way to to the Pacific, which is going all the way the fuck around Africa and the Cape of Africa, which is a long, long trip. It takes them seven months just to get to Madagascar. Seven months. And by then, the sailors were becoming mutinous. And to make matters worse, the Baltic fleet didn't have enough coal by the time they got to the Pacific to sail the long way around Japan to go around them to get to Vladivostok. Sorry, that, that one's hard which is the easternmost port in Russia, you know, the cold water port that's close to Japan. So they end up having to take the route through the Tsushima Straits that that goes between Japan and Korea. And the thing to remember here is that Japan had literal months to prepare for this Baltic fleet to make its way through the Tsushima Straits. And Tojo, the, you know, the, the admiral, the, the guy that was in charge of the armies there, he knew what the deal was, right? He understood that they would have to go the long way. He understood that it would take them months, which is why he took that opportunity to basically refit his ships and get ready for a potential naval battle. He also knew that they probably weren't going to get any support from you know other countries to to refuel and rearm along the way because you know there's like a lot of chatter. They just dealt a a devastating blow in a couple hours and that news got around to the world pretty quickly so he laid a trap he was like yep i know that they're gonna have to go through the tsushima straits and they started using like a wireless telegraph um to like do communications and there was a bit of a fog that happened but they were able to track the 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 baltic fleet and uh you know basically what happens was fucking crazy they russia fucked around and found out uh pretty quickly um they took that route through the tsushima straits and the modern fast firing japanese naval ships dominated the russians and their ships with just more advanced technology and superior speed they use like these tactical maneuvers to sink much larger battleships one such battleship uh the borodino was destroyed when it took a direct hit and it only they only had one survivor out of the 855 on board and by that night the desperate russians they you know they were hoping that the cover of darkness would let them like escape and and retreat but the japanese laid chase on them and you know by the next morning the japanese located you know what was left of the russian fleet and kept you know hitting them russians raised their you know flags of surrender which brought that battle to close before before the noon the next day. So it took them a day to crush the second wave of fleets. And the 
losses were significant for the Russians. 21 ships sunk, 7 captured, and 5,045 people died in a day. In contrast, Japan's forces only lost 117 sailors and 3 torpedo boats. So, very, very lopsided, you know? Um, But yeah. Yeah, it's no wonder that the Bolsheviks targeted the Navy to spread their their literature too, because there was so much there was so much miscontent, you know, within the naval ranks, and you know, there's like the famous stories of the, the, the mutinous Russian sailors, um, mm-hmm. kind of coasting along the Black Sea and stuff. And uh, yeah, I um, heard some really interesting stories about some of like that one Baltic fleet about how maybe they 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 were like firing on each other. Uh, along the way and um, apparently they were fucking around like in the in the Southeast Asian islands and one of them ended up buying like exotic pets like like a snake that evidently didn't let the <laughs> didn't let the uh, the ship near the ma- uh, near the steering wheel <laughs> um, wait I've, I, I, I wasn't super sure about how true some of those stories were so I, I decided not to like well the famous one is Potemkin is, is the famous mutiny that that takes place um mm-hmm. and they were they were in the in the black sea fleet and basically they were like going from from um like port to port and like meeting with like other sailors and like other labor like labor unions that were protesting and like mm-hmm. you know uh, it that's like the famous one uh potemkin i don't know the full story on it but um in russia like best back in st petersburg um, you know, people were, were upset about the fighting and this leads to, you know, the 1905 revolt and to address the revolt, the czar had to divert, divert forces away from China and then back to the West. So the czar's last hope in the war against Japan was his third fleet, but even they were like, no, we're, we're done. You know, this is this is this is over, and then there was a mutiny there, so things were looking pretty bleak. Um, the war the war ends in um, September of nineteen oh five with the Treaty of Portsmouth, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt actually helps is is wins a Nobel Peace Prize for this for for negotiating this. I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, he was the, one of the lead negotiators, or allegedly was one of the lead. Pro- lead negotiators who knows how much was press or how much was real statesmanship there mm-hmm. um, believe for him but you know russia basically recognized japan's growing influence they um they eventually hand over port arthur and um you know some of those islands under dispute as well with the sick island islands mm-hmm. the sick the island north, islands yeah. in the north the ones that um i guess they were fighting over during world war ii mm-hmm. and you know the world was completely shocked because this Asian power, and I mean this is the, this is the 19th century or the 20 the early 20th century, excuse me. But same goes for the late 19th century, early 20th century. People were very racist back then. Believe it or right. not, this is going to surprise you. I want you to sit down for a second. <laughs> People were very racist back then. Um, they were like, what, like. You know, it was the yellow man right. for for these European countries. Um, and people were more racist in, in this time period, probably in any time period in human history, I would imagine. 
this is kind of like the apex of racism. Um, it, you know, mainly because it's combined with the state and, and, and state powers. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess you could say, no, that's that goes back to slavery, which is a fair argument. But this is, you know, part of that. This is definitely peak racism for sure. Yeah. Among the other peaks. Yeah. Um, but I would have I was thinking about this earlier today and I don't think back in the day before, um, I guess really the growth of state power, there wasn't, I would imagine that identity was more focused on religion than nation. So, you know, they were Christians or Muslims rather than, right. There was the concept of race, but I, I definitely think, you know, because it wasn't institutionalized among like just straight up like wars for race, race wars, basically like real race wars. There wasn't, you know, it was, there was still plenty of racism, but it was just wasn't quite as institutionalized as it was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Well, the other thing is though, is that people just didn't have any exposure to other races. That's right. So it's like hard to be racist against something you don't know exists. Yeah. Like they've, I would imagine that 99% of the human population in the seven, early 1700s or the 1600s has never seen an Asian person before. In Europe, that is. Or an Eastern, mm-hmm. an Eastern Asian person. And mm-hmm. vice versa. I would imagine you know the same goes that someone in Japan had never seen a white man. Right. Um, but where was I? Where was I getting off? So, yeah, I guess the Japanese were, weren't too thrilled. Um, they they felt that they deserved more effort for you know their sacrifice but the top brass and that when i say that i mean in terms of the, the surrender um you know they felt mm-hmm. like they should have got more accommodation so the japanese public was unpopular about the terms of the surrender or the terms of right. the of the you know the peace settlement and um the, you know the top brass in japan brush it off and use the war's momentum to essentially annex Korea in 1910 and, you know, set their sights on Manchuria and China and back in Russia, you know, the revolution simmered down, but you know, they had to, the, the czarist regime had to make some serious political and economic concessions to do that. Um, but really everyone was kind of realizing that this was something was going to happen to this to this regime that it was kind of on its last legs and it wasn't going to be sustainable and it seemed like the russian you know the czarist regime was really doing everything it could to kind of make that system collapse sooner than it did and yeah. you know the, the worst possible outcome essentially happens with the bolsheviks um taking power but that's for another episode um but that's all Really, is there anything else that you want to add to this? No, I mean, we could keep going, but I think it might make better sense if we uh, include the next kind of bits in another episode. So I I think this was really good, like, you know, laying the groundwork uh, of the conditions that got us to the, you know, early uh, 20th century um, for Japan, because a lot of that backstory is important because it, it sets the tone for what happens next. And uh, I think what we can talk about in future episodes would be, you know, to kind of discuss, you know, all right, how did the rise of Imperial Japan happen? Because at this point, they're cemented like they are the big dog in the area. They're a regional hegemon. How did they start acquiring their 
colonial possessions. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Japan during World War One um, because I find that very interesting. Uh, you know uh, how they got a bunch of German possessions, how they did the Siberian intervention, and then we can talk about like the immediate post-war period. You know, the Treaty of Japan. We can talk about you know the, their participation in the League of Nations and kind of the racial equality bits or inequality, I should say. Um, and we can talk about things like Chinese nationalism, the threat of communism for Japan, and and of course the Japanese dem- like domestic po- political switch situation. And you know, we can talk about all that stuff. Yeah. Also, the concept of fanatical nationalism, which is which is the term that's meant to describe the Japanese uh, political situation at this period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, it's, you know, the comp, it's, it's like, you know, the perfect storm of nationalism hits Japan because you have like these different, you have these different pillars. One of them is being, is just like the straight up resentment of mm-hmm. the, of feeling shafted from the West mm-hmm. and being basically locked out of the Imperial game. They're like, oh, like it's the 20th century. No modern, no civilized nation has colonies anymore, annexes right, of the right. territory. And they're mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? Like, you guys, so you been guys doing were this doing forever. this 40 years ago. <laughs> like, you guys were doing this forever. Now you're saying that we can't do it. And then there was that racial component as well. You know, there, right. was, there was, you know, racist immigration laws against Asians that, and, and not just that, but just kind of like, you know, there was, there, there was like a truly a racial tension that, that played into the result, played into Japanese nationalism. And then just the core of it, really, where you, when you look at the Japanese state and what the state um, kind of, you know, the two things that it really was unified by was A, the military. So there was a mass militarization of society and then the emperor worship. So Mm -hmm. the emperors literally a divine figure who right. is the embodiment of the embodiment of the Japanese nation. And it, it, I mean, really it was used to kind of legitimize the authority of kind of like the ruling elites there. But this perfect storm, you know, sets in motion, this, um, this, this, this hyper nationalism that takes place. And then also there's like the superiority complex they have mm-hmm. over their, their Asian, neighbors mm-hmm. where they feel like they're essentially like you know kind of a master a master, master race, race. These Asians. Mm-hmm. so it's just so it's it's really interesting what takes place there and it's like it's it's hard to compare it with any other case of nationalism because right. it's it, it's it happens that it's it's a yeah it's a very unique brand of it and then there's also the competing you know there's chinese nationalism too right that that's taking place because there's and growing there's communism, also, which is like almost supersedes, yeah, then, you know, nationalism. The resistance, in a sense. Mm-hmm. the fear of com- the communism as well. It's, it's, you know, all these topics. And I know it may feel like we're jumping around a lot in different, the different periods of history, but you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to stay on track because we're looking at this holistically, like kind of a bird's eye view. So, we may jump from World War One to the Russian Revolution to the Sino-Japanese War, back to World War One, back to the, the Japanese, you know, the the interwar Japan, back to the Russian Revolution, back to you know the situation for Jews in Europe, like mm-hmm. because they're all connected. 
So um, I don't know if that's disorienting for people the way that we're covering this right now, but um, I feel like it's a useful way for at least us to cover it, to, to yeah. jump from topic to topic because, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at things at a macro level and how things, you know, the cause and effect of different things and topics right. and, and situations, difficult. That, that's kind of why we did this episode today is just to like <clears throat> lay down some backstory because in order to talk about things like, you know, uh, the Japanese domestic political situation, you have to like go back and think about, you know, the Meiji restoration. Right. And in order to think about stuff like, you know, the league of nations and racial equality, you have to think about the Sino, uh, the, the Russo Japanese war, you know? And so bouncing around like that can get kind of, like you said, disorienting. So it was good that we were able to kind of lay out some, some basic groundworks to talk about, uh, some of these Japanese topics. Yeah, and I forgot so much of the history, to be completely honest, especially with the Boxer Rebellion and, and yeah. the annexation of Korea. I really completely forgot about how the the politics of it and how weird they were. You mm-hmm. know, for me, that the history of World War II in Japan's case kind of starts with the annexation of Manchuria, mm-hmm. uh, which we're going to get into, but it's, it's um, the whole... The they, whole, don't just, uh, they don't just randomly his, annex. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't but, just randomly annex you, Manchuria. <laughs> like, there's a whole makes, story behind also, it. What also makes Japan so interesting, I guess it, it's it's just so unique. It's it's such a unique case study. And there's so many mm-hmm. weird-ass things that are going on in the country itself. Like um, the emergence of these crazy secret societies. Yep. And... and um, you know, there was, there was, um, it, I'm going to probably branch off too far. So I think we should probably end this, but it's <laughs> okay. Sounds it's, good. But, um, I will end with this after talking about East Asian history, I kind of want to get Chinese food right now. I have a craving <laughs> for like an Asian fusion type meal, like a hibachi slash like chicken and broccoli yeah. you know like the restaurant said do both yep maybe I'll I do the same I'm gonna have for dinner <laughs> get some Korean barbecue and yeah San Juan. yeah all right um, man. all right that, I'm sure that up. came off cringe to a lot of people but whatever um, <laughs> I, I was thinking that midway through the show it's like man I kind of want Chinese food <laughs> um, all right thanks everyone for listening to another episode of bro history if you like the episode, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. You can also rate and review the podcast. And then you can join us on Patreon as well. Danny, anything else to add? No, man. All right. Peace, guys. Peace. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.